from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 8th. Today, as U.S. troops leave Afghanistan, the Taliban gains ground and artificial intelligence and weapons. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats and our development experts, with the Congress and the vice president, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Since last April, the U.S. has been preparing to fully withdraw from Afghanistan and bring an end to America's longest war. Now that withdrawal is reaching a critical stage. On Friday, the United States officially vacated Bagram Air Base and transferred its facilities over to Afghan forces. Ishan Tharoor is a foreign affairs columnist at The Post. If you remember, Bagram Air Base is this pretty vast compound an hour north of Kabul that the United States has used over these past two decades as essentially its kind of nerve center in the country. It's where all the major uh, operations against the Taliban, al-Qaeda, the Islamic State in Afghanistan were coordinated from. It's where major deliveries of cargo and other goods arrived. It's where every single president has come and landed and spoken to the troops. And it's also, of course, where uh, we have a whole pretty hideous uh, history of alleged torture and violent interrogations carried out by the CIA and uh, U.S. military uh, officials of uh, certain suspects who were detained in facilities there. So it's it's a pretty important site of the American occupation and, and its transfer to the Afghans was quite symbolic, especially as we have details that the transfer wasn't particularly well managed. John, can you walk us through what happened at Bagram? The Afghan military is saying the U.S. left in the dead of night, didn't inform them. Looters broke in, grabbed a lot of stuff. And there's also reports that left behind were hundreds of armored and unarmored vehicles. Yeah, so, I mean, I've seen those press reports, Tom. What I can tell you is that there was coordination with Afghan leaders, uh, both in the government as well as in the Afghan security forces, uh, about the eventual turnover of Bagram Air Base. As you know, it was the seventh and the final base uh, that we turned over uh, to the Afghan National Security Forces. You don't do that in a vacuum, and this wasn't done in a vacuum. The symbolism to this is perhaps not exactly what the Biden administration wanted. And then, of course, it came at a time when just as they were vacating this base, you had pretty harrowing reports of Taliban advances in other parts of the country. I want to hear more about that, about what is happening with the Taliban, because that seemed to be the fear from the very beginning of this withdrawal process, that if the U.S. leaves, that means that the Taliban gets to essentially take over. 
Well, this is the the long-running dynamic of this conflict. You have an American occupation that's been in place for two decades in support of an Afghan government that, for a whole variety of reasons, remains quite weak, especially in outer regions of the country, remains riddled with corruption, political infighting, and, and lacks the state capacity to really defeat the Taliban insurgency. Now, there are counter-arguments that the Taliban insurgency also has you know, gained strength in reaction to all these years of foreign military presence in the country. And there is an argument that the American departure will, will essentially pave the way for a political reconciliation. What we're seeing right now, of course, is that the Taliban are indeed pressing their battlefield advantage. They are believed to be in control of roughly a third of the country, and they're, they're battling for many more uh, districts and provincial centers. At the same time, there is a diplomatic and political process in place that the Taliban says they're eager to engage with. We'll see what emerges in, in the coming weeks and whether they do deliver to their own kind of peace plan as they're expected to the, the Afghan government in Kabul. But for now, there are real fears, of course, that once the U.S. and its allies remove their boots from the ground, you may see a scenario that's akin to a full-blown civil war. And if you say that the Taliban at this point has taken over control of a significant portion of the country, what does that actually mean for the people who live in those parts of Afghanistan? Uh, it, it varies from place to place. The Taliban are eager to present themselves as a rational political actor who are capable of conducting governance. And they're trying to paint the picture that they're not the kind of fundamentalist al-Qaeda aligned militia that they were two decades ago. But of course, there are very real fears about what either a Taliban in control or a Taliban that's part of the political system in Afghanistan, what that means for women, for uh, certain ethnic minorities and religious minorities like the Shiite Hazara community what that means for the kind of steps, slow, lurching, but real steps that the country has taken in the past few years to provide greater opportunity to women, to build a more inclusive society. This narrative of the country completely melting away into Taliban control is slightly uh, overstated. It's, it's very difficult to see them kind of sweeping through the country and capturing Kabul or capturing all those major cities. But absolutely, they are in a situation now where absent a major American or foreign intervention, the Afghan government will have a very hard time militarily defeating them. And so the Afghan government, what is their role in all of this? Theoretically, they are supposed to be in charge now, kind of taking the reins from the American military as as the U.S. withdraws. So what is their plan for how to keep things under control in Afghanistan and prevent a further spread of the Taliban? I mean, well, they've been in charge for quite some time now, and, and you have had Afghan troops, uh, many of whom have been trained by the U.S. and its allies, on the front lines, locked in battles across the country with the Taliban. You've seen Afghan troops quite courageously try to hold off these insurgents in various parts of the country. But the problem is not simply just a, a military one. There are questions of governance, there are questions of the ability for the central government in Kabul to really deliver effective governance to various far-flung parts of a very poor country. And the Taliban, like uh, insurgencies throughout history, have gained ground in areas where there is an absence of the government and where there is a sense that 
the local political structures can easily switch over to some other kind of entity. And so this is a long-standing problem. And part of what this political process between Kabul and the Taliban, which is being mediated by a bunch of regional actors, is supposed to achieve is a kind of new framework that could potentially see the Taliban enter power or sort of meld with the existing state structures that are in Afghanistan right now. And how are other countries responding to that? The countries especially that border Afghanistan, like what are they doing to prepare for this full withdrawal of the U.S. military? I think there's a broad understanding that as distasteful as the Taliban may be, there's no military option here. You cannot simply just wipe them off the map. The U.S. was unable to do it for 20 years. And you have a whole number of countries with very conflicting sets of agendas recognizing that from, of course, Pakistan, a country which has essentially supported the, the Taliban for a number of years, to India, which is absolutely opposed to a group like the Taliban, but you've seen Indian officials recently reach out to them. In Russia, they are urging a kind of fast-track political process. Everyone in the region seems quite realistic about what the politics in Afghanistan looks like. And there's not much uh, you know, woe and lamentation about the American exit. This is, of course, you know, an occupation that a lot of countries weren't that happy about in the first place. But there is, of course, a, a degree of concern about what may come and, and, and a real hope that Afghanistan doesn't fall back into the kind of civil strife that led to the Taliban takeover at, in the late 90s. So what is the ultimate deadline for when the U.S. is supposed to be fully out of Afghanistan? In his announcement earlier this year, President Biden linked the withdrawal to the very symbolic date of September 11th, 2021, That is 20 years after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon in the U.S. And it does seem that we may even see a a pretty thorough withdrawal of uh, U.S. troops even before then, perhaps by late August. Of course, the U.S. is not completely disappearing from the country. It's going to maintain a certain detachment of forces to guard the embassy, to, to monitor and help protect the main airport in Kabul. And you will see in the months to come, the U.S. maintain sort of surveillance operations, as well as the capacity to launch strikes if needed as part of its counter-terrorist operations, even without a major military presence in the country. But will that slight involvement from the U.S. government and the U.S. military actually be enough to maintain whatever successes the U.S. was able to get from the last 20 years? And if some of those successes start to disappear, especially with the advance of the Taliban, like what does that say about the legacy of the U.S.'s role in this country? I think it's important not to be too triumphalist about what the U.S. has achieved over the last 20 years, 20 years of state building in Afghanistan has produced some gains in terms of certain infrastructure, in terms of some of the social and political institutions that the U.S. has helped support and create in sort of Afghanistan's fledgling democracy. But the main narrative is one of weakness and fragility and perhaps failure. It's, it's one where you have a central government in Kabul that is rife with infighting, with corruption, with all sorts of frailties. It's one where, for all the U.S. loss of blood and treasure, 
you've not been able to defeat the insurgency of the Taliban that that's remained, that in many ways has gained ground in recent years. There's one legacy, which is that of a story of American hubris and American belief in the power of its good intentions on the world stage. And that really fell apart in these last 20 years of attempted state building in Afghanistan. And you can sense with President Biden that his impatience with this and, and his desire to move beyond this legacy of, of state intervention and occupation is very much part of his thinking right now in, in terms of drawing this down and ending the occupation for good or bad. But there's another legacy which is even more complicated, which is that the U.S. has for decades, in various ways, been involved in the cycles of violence in Afghanistan. It funded the Mujahideen who fought the Soviet Union and was an actor in the years that followed as Afghanistan imploded in various ways and, and we saw the rise of the Taliban. And then when it came in, it tried to reset the table. But now, even after its departure, the U.S. will still have a responsibility to the country because it's, it's impacted it so much. Millions of Afghan lives have been reshaped by American politics. And even now, without its troops in the country, the United States really won't ever be free of an Afghan commitment. Ishan Tharoor is a foreign affairs columnist at The Post. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. So what is the status of AI in military weapons? So I think a really useful way to think about this is to look at the development of self-driving cars. Garrett DeVink is a tech reporter for The Post. For years, we've been talking about cars that are going to be able to drive themselves around. We won't have to touch the steering wheel. It's going to be great. And we do have cars that can stay in a lane and that can even avoid crashing into another car without our control. But the reality is most so-called self-driving cars today still require the human to sort of have their hands on the wheel and look out on front of the road. And so you see this sort of slow incremental development of intelligent cars where, you know, it started where the human had to control it 100%. Maybe now we're at a point where the human has to control it 70, 60%. And in the future, at some point, we might be in a place where the human can just literally fall asleep and won't have to pay attention at all. And so I would say that the development of autonomous weapons sort of follows this same trajectory where you have some very rudimentary technologies where a weapon can make a decision quickly on its own in a sort of yes or no situation. And as we're advancing, the intelligence is getting better and better to the point where AI weapons might be able to go into a situation and make decisions completely on their own about who to shoot, who not to shoot. And so when it comes to those kinds of autonomous weapons, like how does that actually work? What does that actually look like in the real world? So, you know, in the past, we might have had a missile a rudimentary autonomous system that just had a database of, you know, this is what the enemy airplanes sound like. This is what they look like on the radar. If you see one of those, shoot them. This is what the friendly airplanes look like. If you see one of those, don't shoot them. But today, as this technology gets better, you now have things like quadcopters. So imagine those little drones that you might see at the beach, just a hobbyist using to film a beautiful landscape. Now imagine putting a camera on one of those and programming that camera to say, if I see a tank, I'm going to dive bomb it 
and then putting a bomb on that little quadcopter. Mm. And so you have a few different technologies that are readily available. You put them together, suddenly you have a machine that is technically making decisions about who to attack, who not to attack, without a human actually pressing the button themselves. And these are actually in use now? Like they, like people are being killed because of these weapons? So, you know, we haven't been able to actually pinpoint a specific time where we can say this person was killed, you know, beyond a doubt by a weapon that made a decision on its own in this case. A lot of these things occupy this gray zone where the weapon has the ability to be autonomous or the ability for a human to control it. So take Libya. Last year, their ongoing Libyan civil war was in this really intense moment, and the rebel forces were sort of in retreat. And these forces that were backed by Turkey's government actually were chasing down these rebel forces. And a UN report of people who actually went on the ground and talked to people who were in these battles said that there were these drones built by a Turkish defense company that have the ability to choose a target on their own and dive bomb. And there's actually evidence that these things were used in combat. There's pictures on social media of them exploded. There's pictures of them hitting trucks. And so it's unclear 100% whether they were remote controlled by a human or whether they were thinking on their own. But we do know that they're designed to be able to make these decisions on their own. And we do know that they were deployed in the field. Hmm. And is is everybody okay with that? Like, are countries just down for this being the new frontier of warfare? I mean, people are not down with this. There's a lot of activists, human rights organizations, arms control activists that have been working on this file for years. Weapon systems that would select and engage targets on the basis of sensor processing and that do not allow for meaningful human control will cross the threshold of acceptability and must be prohibited. People who oppose the use of these weapons are really pushing for a complete ban on the use of lethal autonomous weapons. So that's any weapon that, whether it's extremely smart, you know, all the way down to just a weapon that's programmed to maybe recognize a certain image and shoot at it, whether it's an image of a tank or a soldier. And they want a complete ban on any weapon that is making its own decision without human control over whether to kill someone or not. And they have been lobbying for years, and there's now about 30 countries who've signed on to this effort. However, the problem is, for those people at least, the the most powerful militaries in the world, they really don't want to have any new rules. They want to be able to develop the technology that they want to develop so that they can defend against future threats. Getting AI right and our secure data fabric environment right will be central to our ability to compete effectively with the Chinese and the Russians as well, or any modern threat for that matter. You know, people sort of push back against this term of saying, oh, is this an arms race or not? But I think a lot of people really do believe that it is, where if you have a country like China that has, you know, really, really high technological capacity, they're developing artificial intelligence. They've said it's a big part of, you know, their country's commercial future as well as their country's military future. And then you look at uh, the United States government and they say, well, if they're doing it, we're going to do it too. Why would we sign on to a treaty that stops us from having a weapon that, you know, our potential future enemy might have? have. So what does the future look like for this? Like, how quickly is this going to become a standard way that warfare is conducted internationally? You know, it's a really, it's a big question. I think that the history of warfare shows us that governments, they move forward as fast as they can to develop new weapons that give them capabilities that they didn't have and that their enemies might not have. 
And they might be saying, look, like we have the, the processes to make sure these aren't used in an inappropriate context. We're being very careful to make sure that they aren't deployed in battle until we know that they work. But at the same time, you see the technology being used in wars that maybe aren't getting a lot of attention. You know, the war in Libya is, is a good example. A lot of drones that have autonomous capacity were also used in the war last year between Azerbaijan and Armenia. You know, these are wars that people are dying in and they might not be wars that the United States is directly involved in. And so sometimes we don't pay as much attention. And But the reality is the technology is moving forward. And even if the biggest governments say that they have it under control, that doesn't mean that smaller countries or rebel groups or even terrorists might not say, hey, we're going to try to use that. And these technologies do have the ability to kill people. But it sounds like a ban on these types of weapons is not going to happen because there is an interest for the U.S. and for many other countries to continue using them, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, autonomous weapons is a very broad category. It can include maybe a missile that is able to hone in on a specific target all the way to a computer system that just looks through data and maybe makes recommendations to humans about what kind of targets they should be looking at or what kind of threats they should be most worried about. And so the United States and some other countries say, look, like, we don't want to ban on this because it's really going to tie our hands from doing some things that we think could actually, you know, save soldiers' lives and maybe, you know, make war less deadly in some ways. But an important point to make is, you know, there have been efforts over the last 20, 30 years to ban other weapons. A really important one is cluster munitions. So these are weapons that a bomb explodes and drops a lot of little bombs all over an area. And sometimes not all of those bombs go off and children later find them and they go off and they sometimes kill people well after after the conflict has ended. And so uh, a lot of countries got together, a lot of activists got together and said, we want to try to ban these weapons. And though the biggest and most powerful countries, including the United States, never actually signed onto this ban and kept trying to make them, by now, a lot of the companies involved in making them that are U.S. companies have said, you know, there's just too much pressure, there's too much heat, and the PR of making these weapons is, is just too negative. So we're actually going to stop doing it. And so some of the activists who are against lethal autonomous weapons say, you know, if we just keep talking about it, we just keep pushing it, a lot of people will say, yeah, we really don't want to be involved in this. And even if we don't have a formal international ban on them, their use could go way down. You know, I think for me as a regular person, there is something about this that feels weird about having machines decide for themselves who should be killed in a war zone. But I think it's worth unpacking a little bit more. Like, why is that weird? Like, what are the parts of this that people are concerned about? And why does this feel like a, a step too far in terms of the kinds of autonomy and, and independence and decision making that we allow machines to make? I think there's two things going on. I think on the one hand, people are worried that the machines will be bad at making decisions and that they will kill civilians instead of killing lawful combatants or you know soldiers fighting in a war, shooting at each other. I think that's a very real thing to be worried about. If you look at artificial intelligence for facial recognition in the commercial world, the non-military world, we know that it's been used on populations that are already vulnerable 
And there's been multiple, multiple studies over the years that show image recognition is actually much worse at identifying black and brown faces as it is at identifying white faces. And so a lot of the systemic, you know, biases, systemic racism that exists in our society has found its way into our technology, mm. including artificial intelligence. And so people are worried that this could also happen, that these same problems, systemic errors, and also just basic technical errors could happen in a military context when it's life or death. And you said that was reason one. What, what is reason two for why people are concerned about this? You know, reason two is, uh, do you really want a machine making a decision in a life or death situation? You know, some people might say, you know, every time someone makes a decision to kill another human being, it's wrong. But I think most societies have said, well, you know, when there's war, there might be a certain context where it's okay to send a soldier into battle and they can shoot another soldier and a human being making a decision whether to pull the trigger or not is an important part of that. Whereas if you have a machine, there might not be elements of mercy. They might not be able to take all of the context into it. If the enemy is surrendering, does that machine recognize that? If the enemy is injured, does that machine recognize that and change their own behavior? People do say, hey, if we let robots do the fighting for us, maybe fewer people will die. But at the end of the day, these battles are still going to be fought in real places and human civilians will be caught in the crossfire. And I think that there is sort of a philosophical argument that always having humans involved in conflict, you know, helps us understand the true costs of conflict. If you don't have any human beings on the front lines actually seeing what the consequences of war are, you don't have any soldiers coming home saying, that was terrible, we shouldn't do that again you know, maybe it will be easier for countries to go to war in the future. And the people in those far off lands that are affected by these wars directly, they don't always have the same say, you know, in the capitals of power. And so I think that's the argument that people are saying for we should really pump the brakes on autonomous weapons. Garrett DeVink is a tech reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Corey Suzuki. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. On Friday's episode of Post Reports, we are taking a break from the news and bringing you two conversations about what this summer is like. Both the joys, like going to museums, and also the downsides, like traveling as the entire country reopens. Last week, I had a pretty terrible flying experience. My flight was delayed more than 10 hours, and I had to try to sleep in the airport. But from talking with friends and going on social media, I've realized that these major delays and cancellations are problems that we're seeing all over the country, right? I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.